What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get it started. I'm Chase Winter, host of the podcast, Lee McClellan, co-host. Hope everybody's doing well post-Christmas. And today's guest, Wes Little. Hello. Wes, tell us uh, your job title, what you do. You've been on the podcast before. Yeah, I've been on a couple of times. I'm uh, one of the biologists, one of two biologists on the Migratory Bird Program. We've got the coordinator, John Brunges, and I work underneath him. So my job is generally uh, doves ducks and geese i handle all the banding and habitat work for both species so you were actually on kentucky field not last weekend but the week before i believe so if anybody watched that show they might have seen you too talking about the dove wing yep. process it was actually shot in this exact room yeah where actually the tables are still set up where you were doing that yeah. so yeah, probably this, still some feathers in the carpet <laughs> probably well i'll look for those later and send you a bill the um no so i wanted to do a couple things today one of them i kind of explained a second ago and that's Talk about just some of those places. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Eastern Kentucky. And uh, like McAlpin just blows me away. And so does Wolf Creek Dan, some of those big structures. And Lee, you told me that you had written some articles even for USA Today. The well, I gave him, Gary Garth, an outdoor writer, said, Lee, uh, I'm on 10 overlooked, really cool places in Kentucky that most people don't know about. So uh, I sent those to him, and I think he's used a f several of them in uh, USA Today and some of his freelancing activities. That's good. And I wrote a couple of them down. Well, I'll tell you what struck me the other day. So I told you a second ago before we got started that somebody asked me, it's actually my mom's husband, what the most difficult hunt I've ever been on was. And I just told him, oh, it's a bear hunt. <laughs> and uh, I've never been successful on a bear hunt, but I've worn myself out more. And um, I told him it's basically just Eastern Kentucky, the terrain, you really have to go out there and experience it before you, you know what it's like. And then when I was in my car driving home from there, I was thinking to myself about what I told him and about why it was challenging. And I was thinking about why I think that way about Eastern Kentucky. And it's because you can be on a bear hunt. And I really think you have to like experience this to get a feel for it, but just be four hours into a hike in, you know, up a mountain, you've been crossing creeks and and then you're up there and you're like hopping across boulders from one to the other, trying to get just a little bit further. And then you think to yourself, what if I <clears throat> tear an ACL? <laughs> you know, what if, what if I just roll my ankle real bad? And then you start thinking that way and you start, okay, I've got, I do have a lighter, I have a knife, I have a rain jacket. And you're thinking, well, I could probably, if I can get out of the wind and the rain, I can probably survive here overnight. And you start thinking that way. And that's what makes you really appreciate Eastern Kentucky because you realize, you know, you're kind of at the mercy of the land in, in some ways. I mean, the, it's more powerful than you are. Here in the Bluegrass region, if you tear your ACL while you're hunting, chances are you can probably make a phone call and be okay. Yeah. But you know, there are areas out there where it's just, it's just different. And yeah. you kind of have to be in that situation and feel it out to really appreciate Eastern Kentucky. And that's kind of the thought process that was going through my mind. And I don't know how many people have really gotten the chance to go out there and to do that, to feel like you're at the mercy of the land a little bit. But it kind of reminds me the same way I feel when I'm fishing the lower dam, like we did in the mm -hmm. fall. You know, you're, you're standing there below, right below that big structure and you got this powerful water coming through and you just almost feel small mm -hmm. next to it. You know what I mean? And so I was wanting to get your take on that. And Wes, we tried to schedule this podcast last week, but you were unavailable and you were doing waterfowl counts. Mm -hmm. I did not realize you were doing them from a plane. Right. Until, until later. Because you told me, uh, I think in your email, you said, yeah, our plane ran into 
uh, icy rain. We had to delay. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, Wes is, yeah. how ice. do I get his job? <laughs> <laughs> ice wings yeah. don't make a good combination. No, ice and anything really doesn't make a good combination. Well, sometimes uh, like a cold drink and ice. So I wanted to get y'all's takes on some of those and, and just maybe talk about some of those places that we've seen. And then Wes, of course, waterfowl. Or not just waterfowl, but all migratory bird. Mm -hmm. And I put a little filler out on uh, Instagram earlier on the Kentucky Field Instagram, and we got we have some questions. So I definitely want to get to those by the end of the day, also, and I'll keep checking those, also. But um, so I told you my Eastern Kentucky Lee. Let's hear what you have. Give me one of yours. Well, one of the places that people don't realize that is really cool. It's called Laurel Gorge. It's on the Ed Mabry WMA. Have you been up there before? I have. Yep. Laurel Gorge. Yeah, it's the yep. Laurel Creek Gorge. A lot of people just call it Laurel Gorge. We have uh, nearly 1,400 acres up there that's public land and I did a piece on it years ago and I was blown away with the, there's a couple of really big waterfalls there's giant boulders there's rock houses there's bluffs it's like a little miniature gorge yep. and uh, we stock about uh, 3,000 trout in it over the years April May and October and 250 pound or browns and uh, if you want a place where it's like there's probably not going to be anyone there and you want a mountain trout experience, that's about the best place. That and Rock Creek are about the best places. It's, um, I couldn't believe the waterfalls, the couple of them up there were just, and these giant house-sized boulders are covered in moss. I mean, it's primeval and it's super cool. And you're in the, the, the foothills of the Appalachians. It's in Elliott County. Elliott County? Mm -hmm. And you said this is owned by the department? Yes. So it's public hunting there also? Yes. Okay. Good. Um, some underutilized WMAs and waterways are, are kind of a point of emphasis because mm -hmm. there are great WMAs and waterways out there that people just don't even think about. So you're telling me that one of, that the first place that you decided to mention in that conversation about places that make you feel small mm -hmm. is actually probably an underutilized WMA or waterway in itself. And it's, it's really cool and, and most people don't, you know, outside of the, the, the people that live there, if you're like, have you been to Laurel Creek Gorge? People look at you, where's that? No, I mean, most people would not ever have a clue what that mm -hmm. is. And uh, you know, I love Appalachian foothill country. It's really pretty. Yeah. It's kind of in that rock castle-ish like uh, parts of, of Southern Madison County are yeah. and Powell County and some of those where you, you, it, it has that feel to it. Yeah. And uh, you're fairly close, I think, to Little Sandy up there as well. Um, but it, it's really, really uh, stunning. And yet it looks like you're out, uh, out west if you were to, to go up there and fish. When you say out west, like, what, well, do, what do you compare? Because I'm mean, trying to get more a... of a mountain. You know, most of our decent trout fisheries in Kentucky, unfortunately, are tailwaters. They don't give you the feeling of a mountain experience. And, like, you went into a mountain stream and did well here recently below uh, the little trip that goes into Cumberland Bar River. Bark Camp Creek. Bark Camp Creek. Yeah, and that, when you were explaining this place to me, that's kind of what I envisioned. Yeah. Because it, it's it's kind of a, it's not a gorge created by the creek with their waterfowls and big waterfalls and big boulders and, you know, you pretty much explained it, moss-covered rocks and I was thinking about the gorge too. I think a lot more people have seen the Red River Gorge and have an idea what that looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe Swift Camp Creek or um, certain areas of the Red River, yes, but that, that water gets pretty muddy. Mm -hmm. You know, and those mountain streams, I'm really thinking crystal clear mm -hmm. um, water. And, and, you know, the gorge is, is loved you know <laughs> to say the least That's we go on east fork indian creek i mean the, the, the some of the the hills are little knobs around them they're rounded off from so many uh, people yeah. walking on them and stuff in other words you're saying that is not a not an underutilized no waterway. i mean but this this is <laughs> yeah and uh you know you're going to want to get there it's a fairly good drive but it's not impossible well, it depends but, on where uh, you're coming from yeah 
I mean, from Lexington, you're looking at maybe, I can't remember, it's been a while since I've been up there, maybe hour and change. Yeah, that's not bad. So, but uh, just a really cool, overlooked, neat place. Gotcha. So, Wes, when you were flying the other day, uh, well, first of all, which part of the state were you in? So I covered the central and eastern routes. So two different surveys. The central route, we leave out of Frankfurt, head to Harrington Lake. From there, we go to Cumberland, Dale Hollow, over to Barron River Lake, Green River Lake, Taylorsville Lake, up to Louisville, and then fly the Ohio River up to Rabbit Hash, and then back to Frankfurt. Huh, that's a pretty good loop. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's an all-day flight. That's the longest <laughs> survey that we do. Um, the eastern route, basically the same, just on the other side of the state. We head down to Richmond, fly the Army Depot, head up to Cave Run Lake and the Licking River there, Grayson Lake, Yatesville Lake, hit Ashland on cool. the Ohio River. We fly a portion of the Scioto River, which is in Ohio, but dumps out uh, at Portsmouth, Ohio, yeah. on the Ohio River, uh, right off of the river. We don't fly far into Ohio at all, but there's a pile, there's a big floodplain there that we always include that because those birds trade in and out of the Ohio River. Mm -hmm. And then we come down the Ohio to Newport, so, and the, more of the Licking River on the northern section to Falmouth, basically. So you pretty much cover the state. Right. It From, sounds like you might not hit Pike County, but everything else. If it's got wetland habitat or yeah. a, a big lake that holds birds, we probably look at it. Well, so how many years have you been doing that? Uh, I've been doing it, I guess this is seven years now, but the survey has been going for year, I mean, decades. I can't, the last time I was in a small plane, uh, I mean, it's been 15 years. So, you know, like a, a Piper Cub or any of those planes. And it was really cool when you're up there. It has a much different feel than a commercial um, airline does. Or, you know, when you fly commercial yep. to Dallas, it it's, feels much more intimate maybe with, uh, with what's mm -hmm. going on around you. Yep. What was the coolest thing you saw? So I've seen a lot of cool things. So I've, I've tagged along with some of the Western surveys. And one of the most fun, we used to do these surveys every two weeks for the entire waterfowl season, basically. Now we only do, the survey we just completed, it's called the Midwinter Waterfowl Survey. It's a requirement for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And basically, it, it back checks the population count we get from the, the, the summer surveys done on the prairies. Okay. So every state in the nation, if you have a hunting season and you want and are part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Agreement, then you know, you. Yeah. agree to do the midwinter survey. So that's what we're going to be talking about is the midwinter. Okay. But one of the coolest things I ever saw was in uh, Henderson Slough's area, and I don't know where we were, somewhere over there, yeah. and flying across a hill in two of the biggest bucks I have ever seen in my life. This would have been close to gun season around Thanksgiving holiday, probably the first flight of the year. Yeah. We're just locked in an epic battle, and they were knocking over bushes. And, I mean, crazy. we saw them for, at a distance. Were the horns locked oh, up? absolutely. Or? They were fighting. It was, I mean, it looked like they something. They get stuck sometimes, can't they? they? These two were not stuck. They were just, it was two dominant bucks, and it was one of the most fun, because we just circled and watched, and they couldn't care less <laughs> if there was an airplane 300 foot above them. Yeah. Oh, it was cool. Uh, but then seeing cool. all the different bird species that, you know, you always have oddballs. Uh, what, what's the, the most oddball rare one you've seen? Uh, so they're not super oddball, but uh, the sea ducks are always the oddball that mm -hmm. show up. Now you also, you'll occasionally will see uh, uh, golden eagles show up. And, you know, that doesn't sound super exciting, but we just don't get that many of them in mm -hmm. Kentucky. And when you see one, uh, a few years back, I, I think it was Yatesville Lake, one flew under the plane and it appeared to be the same size as our airplane. It was just a gigantic <laughs> bird and beautiful, just yeah. shining gold. You could see the tail 
to, to get a positive ID on it. And, uh, it, you know, you, you see stuff that just you don't get to see from the ground. No, when true. you're looking down instead of up, it, it changes perspective. So That's that's pretty cool. I can, uh, a big golden eagle, it seemed like it was the size of the plane. It, yeah. it, we, I mean, it scared me. It was so big. Like, what, well, that thing would have taken us out. It seemed like, you know, it was just right there. But. I saw one when I was a child, but I, you know, at, at Bartstown, where we live, is out on the outskirts. And as the crow flies, we were maybe five miles from Burnham Forest. Right. And, you yeah, know, they, they've yeah. had they've had a population there for a long time. Yep. And I was like, wow, what is that gigantic? brown huge bird with the talons on i went home i got the bird yep. book out and i was like oh i ran back he was gone I bald said, eagles oh. are, are giant birds but mm -hmm. a golden eagle this when you see it you know it's not a bald eagle mm -hmm. it, and if you're used to seeing bald eagles up close they're just bigger yep. chase but, and i saw a bald eagle in fern creek when we floated floyd's fort oh I, bald eagles are kind of, you probably see quite a few bald eagles oh, especially absolutely. when you go over yeah. dale yeah we count them on this route to help yeah. out our, our avian program over here but and i saw a bunch this year yeah bald eagles you know when i was a kid i you never saw mm -hmm. no. never saw and i probably saw my first bald eagle i was coyote on called it in and uh that was probably just seven years ago six seven years ago i know they were around before then but i just hadn't seen them but now i mean it's a pretty regular occurrence you know i, I think that every time i go down to Dell hollow i see multiple um i see them on elkhorn see them on floyd's fork mm -hmm. uh, river i mean I don't want to say they're a common bird, but it's nothing. I've you seen know. a lot at, at Kentucky Lake. I've seen a lot at Lake Cumberland too. Yeah. Yep. Well, you were talking about you know the perspective being different, being up in the air and looking down. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something you just don't get to see every day. And that's kind of the same thing. Uh, Lee was talking about the uh, Laurel Creek Gorge. Uh, I mean, the reason it's amazing to you to it would be really cool to go see is because it's just not something you get to see every day. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with what it's I was talking about. It's public land. A big chunk of it's public land. Well, so. and hiking those uh, WMAs out in Eastern Kentucky and kind of what I was talking about with the bear hunt and the elk hunt, you kind of got to be willing to, I mean, it's not feasible for everybody to jump in a plane and go fly around, but you know, most people can get out and go for a hike. And uh, you know, you kind of got to put that work in to see those things sometimes. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's kind of the difference in going to uh, chimney top rock at the gorge where you can go down a nice uh, handicap accessible path and that's where everybody and their brother goes or do you want to go to cloud splitter um, which is much more difficult but mm -hmm. the view you know it's, it's similar but it, it just feels different when you put in the work and you get up there yep. so Wes um, you said that this was required by US Fish and Wildlife right yes some of the questions that have come across on Instagram because I have been uh, scrolling through and previewing them, I think some of them are going to be answered by that relationship that we have with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So do you want to explain just real quick how uh, migratory birds are managed? Yeah, yeah, sure. So so we do not manage migratory birds in Kentucky. Any migratory bird is protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and that is basically, you, you hear the, the, it would take an act of Congress to change that. Literally to change something with Migratory Bird Treaty Act is an act of Congress. It is an agreement with Mexico, U.S., Canada, Russia, and Japan. That's one of the conservation wins that we've had throughout the years. They got everybody in a room, and you, you, know, you name those countries, I don't always see eye to eye, but they all sat down and made this agreement that we will manage migratory birds by using your federal wildlife agency, and we will follow these rules from here on out, basically. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has all jurisdiction they set the seasons, they set bag limits, management plans all run through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So we help them. Yeah. So, so people call all the time, one of the most common questions, why can't we hunt in February? Seems like the ducks don't even get here till February. 
And the short answer is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service sets our season dates and they cannot go past now January 31st. For the longest time, it was the last Sunday in January. The service just extended that by a few days and allowed up to January 31st. So regardless for of ducks. anything, for ducks, yes. Uh, regardless of anything we say or do in Kentucky, if we wanted that, we can't just make that change. It has to go through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Well, that makes sense because, oh, you think about deer. Okay, deer. If, if we have deer here in Kentucky, sure, they might occasionally, a couple of them go into Tennessee and come back, right? Uh, I'd say a couple might make it to Ohio or Indiana. That'd be more challenging. But the birds you're talking about, I mean, we're, uh, let's just say geese. So we have a lot of resident geese here, but what, what, what are the other geese that don't live here year-round? Where do they come from? So, so the common bird geese in Kentucky are going to be your snow geese, which are snow and Ross's goose. And mm -hmm. the snows, you've got two variants, the blue goose and the white snow goose. You have the white-fronted goose that comes through, and then our Canada goose. So those are big species. You know, Canada goose, you could, depending on if you're a biological term, a lumper or a splitter, is the, yeah. how many subspecies do you want to count? Canada geese, I think there's nine, or maybe even 11 now. I don't, I'm not a splitter. There's 11 I have a oh, yeah, species of Canadian geese. Yeah, it's, it's subspecies. <laughs> no, and, and that goes north, south, east, west. Yeah. You know, you go far west, you have like a, a dusky geese. So it's got this dirt. It, you see them at WMA in Western Kentucky. Sometimes they've been hanging out on the gravel roads too much, and they get that red, dusty color on them. Somebody will call and say, "Oh, we got a dusky goose that's flown in." Like, oh, that's a Western species. That's probably just a dirty Canada goose. <laughs> <laughs> and you have lesser Canada geese. You have the true cackling goose. Mm -hmm. There's lots of in-betweens uh, depending yeah. on on where you are. I'm not a splitter because all Canada geese interbreed. Even the cackling goose, which is the size of a mallard, it will interbreed with a Canada goose, a giant Canada goose that we have. That's our, our resident. And I just did the air quotes because there's no such thing as a resident goose. See, that's a term yeah. that, the reason I use that word is because I've heard it used. Sure, everybody and uses that word. I'll be 100% honest with you well, guys. Well, we used to call it resident goose season, the September season, long right. time ago was called the resident I'll goose be, season. I'll be 100% honest with you. I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage on this topic because I'm not a waterfowl hunter. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to be, I'm just not to this point. So like when you, I'm sure a lot of waterfowl guys Well, your wallet thanks you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a wallet vacuum. So where do the where do those geese come from? So they are resident geese. Let, let me back up. Okay, I don't want to offend our listeners. You're okay calling them resident geese. <laughs> I call them resident geese. But technically, there's no such thing. All Canada geese are still migratory. A, per, a percentage. It could be as high as 10 percent. We don't exactly know yet. Uh, every summer. So this year's hatch year birds. They hatched this summer. Mm next summer they've, they've got their full season of flighted feathers flighted life all canada geese molt their feathers at one time they're flightless for about a month a certain percentage of last year's babies this summer will fly to canada depending on what region of the state they leave from is where they'll wind up up north but they fly there they molt their feathers sometimes they come back sometimes they pair up with somebody and go to another state mm -hmm. the same thing happens with failed nesters so here if a stray dog runs on campus here and destroys a Canada goose nest, that goose might re-nest, mm -hmm. or it may, she may just decide to go north and molt her feathers, hang out in Canada all summer long, and if she pairs up, she might go somewhere else. If not, she might come back here, or she might pair up and bring another bird back here. Mm -hmm. So th they are migratory birds. They absolutely migrate, but it's only a small percentage. 90% mm -hmm. of it, and that's a fake number, I, we don't know the exact number, mm -hmm. They are resident birds. They stay here year round. 
Now, the rest of the species are 100% migratory. None of the rest of our goose besides park mallards. Now, there is a difference in park mallards versus a wild mallard, but the rest of their Would duck species... Would you call these park mallards here? Uh, it depends on what part of the year. The ones that are here in the summertime, absolutely. The ones that show up in the winter, you can't tell the difference. Yeah. Hmm. So, Why do they go to Canada? Uh, good question. Is it the maple syrup? Uh, uh, don't uh, ask. <laughs> my assumption is it's a, it's a genetic, it's a recession. Take off, eh? Part of the genes that, you know, a, a bird is supposed to migrate north for winter. That's what, historically, that's what Canada geese did. They were here in the winter, they were north in the summer. My gut says that, that there's some genetic programming in there. They know that they can go north and be around you know, hundreds of thousands of other Canada geese. Yeah. And that's the way we discovered that is our banding programs. Our summer banders in Canada, sitting on uh, James Bay up there, all of a sudden there's this influx of southern birds coming from the heavens from the south, not the north. They're not coming off the prairies coming down a little bit or they're not coming somewhere else. They're all traveling from the south and we, they start banding these birds as they molt and they're finding birds that have already been banded in Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, you, know, you name it. So we didn't know that until the banding programs started recapturing birds from the south. That's how we discovered that these yeah. birds were, that we call it molt migrations. They're completing their molt in the north and these molt migration birds were discovered through the banding programs. Hmm. Huh. So a second ago when, when we started on that topic, I was basically saying, you know, deer might go across state lines, but very, I mean, for the most part, right. we can manage that resource here in-house. Sure. <clears throat> but those, those, it makes sense to have the U.S. Yep. Fish and Wildlife Services and the yeah, migratory it, game birds are a shared resource. Yeah, that's what Everything we do affects every state that touches us and farther south and farther north. I mean, so, so what's the furthest migration that our, some of the birds we get here in Kentucky make? I know sandhill cranes come from Siberia, right? Uh, it, they can. So okay. when, you, when you get to the prairies, Siberia is not that far. It's just as far to go from, from, from the Canadian prairies over to Russia as it is from Canadian prairies to Kentucky. When you start looking at crossing over the western prairies across Alaska, across the straits into to Russia, that's not that long of a straight line distance. Mm -hmm. They just went west instead of south. Mm -hmm. so, so there's a ton of trading. Mm -hmm. uh, Kentucky banded birds have showed up all across the prairies, Alaska. I'm sure they've gone abroad. I don't have that data right in front of me to, to list numbers of show up, but it's not uncommon for birds to to just show up in a weird place. So Japan or whatever, you know, something crazy. They just kind of take off and see where they land. They, do, they really do. They, if a storm hits, you know, they're yeah. flying with a group, they're hitting a storm. They, when, it, when the storm breaks, they don't know where they are. You yeah. know, that, that the, happens with migratory birds. Some of the migrations that animals make are the most amazing things. Yeah. Like the monarch butterfly, that might be the most amazing. I mean, just simply because how do you go from being hatched out of an egg to a caterpillar, five instars later, finding your way to Mexico right. and knowing exactly where you're going. Yep. And I guess it's kind of similar. I guess it seems more amazing to me because I don't think of a butterfly being as intelligent as a, mm -hmm. as a goose, but the same thing. How does that goose that's hatched here know where it's heading? Or the American eel. I mean, how they know to come back to where they were. Yep. It's spawning. Just programmed into the, the migratory birds. It, I yep. guess it's hard to figure that out. It's hard to have a conversation with a goose and really get inside their head, isn't it? But physically, you can figure stuff out. So here's another question. A second ago, you said these geese are coming down from the heavens, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm assuming you're meaning that they're flying pretty dang high. It's like sandhill high, higher. I mean, because I always think of sandhill cranes migrating way up. You know, you yeah. can't you can't see them, but you can hear them above the clouds. Type yeah. Stuff. So a duck hunting term, you hear migrators. Here's migrators. That means get ready. You're more susceptible to get those. Those birds are more susceptible to your calls. They're looking for a place to land versus a stale resident bird that may not 
you can't look at the sky and tell, is this a migrator based on one bird? But if you've had it one of those mornings of the good north wind and you have groups and groups of up high birds that are susceptible to calling, uh, you know, I've been in Western Kentucky, these big field pits that have hundreds mm. and hundreds of decoys set out and they're trying to get geese. These guys are waiting for those days. Mm. Those days, their calls work because uh, you have about 24 hours when a bird winds up in a new area before they find all the safe spots. But that 24 hour window, they're susceptible to calls. So we call those migrators. They, sh they show in, they've been riding the, the winds, they're, they're up high and they're looking for company. So when they come into your area, they see your spread, they hear your calls. Those migrators are, are more likely. So the Canada geese that we were just talking about, I say come from the heavens, they weren't flying from the next pond over. Yeah. These were migration birds that were coming across the main lake up high looking for this specific place where thousands of other geese are already so basically, they, you can tell, I mean, if they're making a short flight, they, they approach it differently. If they're making a long migratory flight, they're going to get up higher and, like you said, ride the yep. airwaves. Right. So they're just saving energy. Right. Um, I've got to imagine that it gets pretty cold um, up there, especially when we're talking about Canada, Russia, Alaska. So what is it about a migratory bird that allows it to survive? So they've got a lot of neat traits. First off, blood flow. You know, everybody's seen that goose or mallard standing out on the ice on one foot with everything tucked in, mm -hmm. but he's standing on the ice, mm -hmm. skin the ice, what, what have you, and they don't yeah. freeze their foot off. You know, their, their bodies are designed to slow the circulation where needed or speed it up where needed to direct blood, to warm a spot, to get blood where it doesn't need to be if it's, you know, uh, if there's an internal organ that needs warming, they have the ability to control their blood flow. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And then they have those feathers, the under feathers, the down feathers, what pillows and beds are made out of. Uh, my coat is full of down feathers. It's the warmest substance. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I absolutely love a, a true down jacket mm -hmm. because once it warms up, it just holds that heat. And mm -hmm. so that's another feature that allows ducks to thrive where it's cold. Um, that's why right now we still have mallards and Canada geese in Canada, mm -hmm. even though their, their hunting seasons are over, but we've not had that hard freeze that covers all the foods up. And if it's just cold, they can stand it. As long as there's some water and food for them available, they may not migrate south. So they're, they're tough, tough birds. What do, you, what do you think the most amazing thing about migratory bird? I mean, pick, pick any one of them. The most amazing physical attribute or, you know, feature or something that allows them to survive what do you think the most amazing thing is the homing ability to me that's blows my mind you gotta explain that to me so just like we were talking about you can touch that that gosling that was born here on our headquarters pond and banded last summer mm -hmm. that bird that's a city goose you know that bird spent its entire year probably right here didn't okay. go far might have went to a pond or two around frankfurt but it's not traveled the countryside that bird has the instinct to pick up and land at South Hudson Bay or James Bay, depending on the genetic code or whatever, you know, yeah. some portion of our state go James Bay, the other South Hudson Bay, but they know to go there and they know exactly where to find a couple hundred thousand geese sitting there waiting on them. Wow. And the homing ability <laughs> of a migratory bird, a hummingbird, for instance, yeah. they cross the Gulf of Mexico. You picture a hummingbird you know, I, I don't know if you've ever gotten to hold one. We banded no. one a rufous hummingbird, which is a western species that occasionally gets lost in Kentucky. One came to my feeder, and a uh, a bird, a hummingbird bander, 
called I called him and he came over to the house and banded that bird. I mean, you're talking something the size of your thumb. Uh-huh. They cross the Gulf of Mexico without stopping, you know, and they know right where they're going. They don't get lost fighting the wind. The homing ability of a migratory bird that that's amazing. By far, I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah. Like it's just how it works. Yeah. I'm not sure. Does anybody know how it works? I, just theories. Just theories. Yeah. I mean, uh, Kristen can't make it. To, uh, it took her five trips to Shelbyville from Louisville to figure out how to get there. That's amazing. Well, I don't know. My wife's the same way. Left or right? Right, left. You know, like <laughs> I'm the navigator. She's the driver. Because she's. How many different species uh, do you keep track of? So species, uh, as far as keeping track, you have groups. You have dabbling ducks, that's your mallards, black ducks, gadwall, teal, pintail, widgeon, you know, th- that group. Yeah. We have diving ducks, that's gonna be the scop, redheads, canvasbacks, bufflehead and, and golden eye. They kind of cross over into what's called a sea duck as well. Um, sea, true sea ducks spend their life on the coast on, on, along the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean. That's your old squaw, which is now a long-tailed duck, mm-hmm. your scoters, your eiders. We've had long-tailed ducks show up out here. I, I saw two up at Ashland on the Ohio River. There were two long-tails hanging out. So, so gorgeous how, birds. How does that happen? They just get either, I don't know if they get lost or if they... Bored or, you know, or... I assume they get lost, but they come, there's, their scoters and eiders and long-tails are commonly an uncommon bird you know that's that, mm-hmm. when i hear about them it doesn't shock me but you're only going to hear one or two a year generally they get shot here in kentucky especially on the ohio river and the big lakes uh, especially the scoters though they're kind of a more southerly uh sea duck and they show up a little higher frequency than but the their others. you know uh, but, table uh, value is of sea ducks is yeah it's not great <laughs> it's not great they, they eat mussels and you know so sea fare <laughs> i want to i want to get to um, some conversation that might be more beneficial to somebody who waterfowl hunts because mm-hmm. for right now like i said i'm not a waterfowl hunter so just learn because the half the species you just named off i could not pick out if you showed me a, a poster that had all you said yep. name this species i mean that's a lot more than i thought so i'd kind of just like to learn more about the migratory birds in general so when we're talking the birds that people typically hunt, mm-hmm. um, what, what's the main predator for those birds? So, so that's it, it depends on their season, the, yeah. the cycle. I figured it changed. It goes from probably raccoons and coyotes up yeah. to... On the, on the breeding grounds in, prairie, in the prairie, skunks and raccoons are going to be your number one predator. Mm-hmm. Then you, uh, so for, it's like wood ducks, for instance, they are cavity nesters. Uh, here in Kentucky, they, they, it's the only summer duck that, that we have besides they park mallard that doesn't count. Um, What's a cavity nester? It, it literally has to have a cavity such as a bluebird mm-hmm. box. Yeah. A bluebird is a cavity nester. It has to find either a natural hole in a tree or a box like that we build put out. and put There's out a bunch specifically on for wood ducks. I've seen them on Drennan Creek too. So and an egg predator. You see a lot of wood ducks on something. One of their predators for, to the eggs would be woodpeckers. Woodpeckers will go in and crack the egg and get that high protein. high protein meal right there. So, mm-hmm. the, so they all have a specific predator of some sort. Snakes, for instance. Yeah, I'll say rat snakes. Seems like it'd love yeah, that. Absolutely. But that's on the nest. That's you're talking so about do, eggs. Do the raccoons and skunks eat like a goose or no, no, they're going the eggs. for the eggs. They're yeah. going for the eggs. That's so, so we're talking predators yeah. to the eggs or yep. snakes, fox, um, raccoons, yep. skunk, mink. Same predators are quail and turkey have. Yeah. But uh, the birds themselves are not as susceptible to predation 
to smaller animals. You know, a, a raccoon could certainly kill a duck, and I've seen ducks die from raccoons, but that's not common. Your more common predators than would be an eagle or a great horned owl, mm-hmm. uh, something of that nature. At night, if, if a coyote or a bobcat or something, if they find it, then yeah. certainly, but they typically, in, in the wintertime, they're roosting on open bodies of water. They're not on land for the most part, or they're night feeding, and you know, they might, but they're, they're typically targeted to, to water. Mm-hmm. So they don't have a high predation rate. They do die uh, from migration, the, the, the rigors of migration. You know, it's hard to fly thousands of miles and live through it. You know, their, their, their body has to be in high enough condition and then as soon as they land, they have to find food and not get shot while they're doing it. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, uh, our hunting seasons are actually set up that way. We, we only kill birds that would probably die anyway. We know what the death rate is of the species. Tell me, that, Tell me. give me an idea. So that's, that's, that's a tough one. It's somewhere between 25 and 50% of the population will probably die, depending on which species, mm-hmm. what critter. depends on how harsh like the fish, and stuff. You know. Yeah, half the population might, a dove, 50% of the dove population will die every year. And that, I'm talking about the young mostly. They, they're hatched somewhere and they have to figure it out, you mm-hmm. know, and survive winter. So we're talking life expectancy on average is two years, three years? If you're talking 25 yes. to 50 percent, you're right. looking at it. Yeah. Now there are certainly mallards in Canada. I've heard of a 36-year-old Canada goose band return and a mallard or a canvasback. Did you was, say 36 years yes. old? Yeah. They can certainly live that long, but that's not the the norm. The 36 norm, years. A, a goose in Louisville with no real predation other than cars might live four or five years, six years. But those birds are still trading out into the farm fields and mm-hmm. susceptible to hunting. And the most part, a couple of years is a, a two or three years is an old bird when you're talking the duck world. I can't imagine a 36 year old goose. No. I mean, that's I'd older. say it's tough. It'd <laughs> <laughs> be pretty chewy. Yeah. That's funny. So tell me more about these birds. So the food source for the, mo- the majority of our waterfowl is going to be grains, moss. I mean, what are we? Yeah, grains and moist soil vegetation. So uh, we did a, 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 I wrote an article for the magazine, uh, I guess last year. Moist soil vegetation mm-hmm. is basically weeds. It's what grows naturally in the wetland environments. You're talking about your sedges, smart weeds, your wild millets. You know, there's a, there's a lot of grass species that produce perfect little seeds with tons of protein and energy. They also, the, the, the great thing about moist soil vegetation is it has a seed at the top. It has a plant body that some species is, is very palatable. And then it has a root or a tuber that also, depending on the species of plant, is a valuable, so everybody, turkey hunters know about chufa, the magic food plot that surfaced 10 or 20 years ago. Everybody started hearing about chufa. Well, chufa grows in the wild. It's a nut sedge that grows in wetlands and it has a little bit of seed up top, a little bit, it just looks like your everyday sedge. And then it's got that little tuber at the bottom and ducks love that stuff. They'll eat the seed, they'll mash down the plant. Sometimes some species will, uh, plant species, the the, the leaf matter is good. And then the, the tuber itself is good. So a moist soil, crop, your natural vegetation, that's your health food. That's has everything they need to survive. And then on top of that, there's bugs that live in there. Mm-hmm. Aquatic invertebrates, especially in the late winter and spring heading towards the northern migration, they need that high, uh, high quality, you know, you're talking about 20 plus percent protein mm-hmm. and the, the calcium they need to build the eggshells. The bugs is the, that's the most nutritional critter they can get their their mouths on so you'll find that stuff in moist soil now when it's super cold they need energy and so now you're talking flooded crops uh, flooded corn uh, japanese millet things of that nature 
there's no better energy source out there. Uh, all this stuff, when, as managers, we're, we're talking duck use or duck energy days. And basically what that is, is how many either ducks or days you can sustain those ducks on an acre of ground with that mm-hmm. food source. So flooded corn, standing corn, unharvested corn, flooded. The duck energy days or duck use days is a huge number, but mm-hmm. it's all energy. It's all fat and sugar. That's good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like a marathon runner. First thing they need is a Gatorade. Something that's mm-hmm. get some sugar in my body, mm-hmm. some electrolytes and, and to keep me going. But you're not going to survive on Gatorade. You know, you yeah. got to have a good diet. And so that's where the moist soil comes in on these warm days. Right. It's on warm fuel. days, you're going to find them loafing somewhere where there's natural food. You've got the complete uh, span of of the food items that they can they can grab. So that's that's our management goals: is mo- quality moist soil, quiet loafing areas, your refuge that you would you would have, and then flooded crop of some sort for a high energy. That's kind of the trifecta of duck management. So when you were talking through that, I was thinking to myself, okay, water water bodies are useful, crops are useful. So th- those are things that have really come a long way in the past. 100 years, I mean, because when all the dams were built back in mm-hmm. the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, we created these big lakes and, you know, and made the rivers, you know, hold mm-hmm. more water year round or just larger in general crop fields or there's a lot more crops now than there used to be. Yep. So have, have the populations of these birds increased as those resources have increased? Yes, we have more ducks now than there's been in the history of duck counting. Well, with a few exceptions, there are mm-hmm. some species that have seen some pretty significant declines. Pintails. Uh, pintail, for instance. There was a really good uh, article that was just came out. I think it's in Western Farmer or Western Agriculture Magazine, something like that, that basically it explained uh, the, the land use change mm-hmm. Uh, pintails, they, they must have open land. They're not going to nest in woody vegetation. They need open prairie, and a lot of the open prairie has been converted to agriculture. Pintails are early nesters, so they're initiating nests in croplands that have not yet been planted. So they start their nest, and the farmers run their planters through there, and it destroys the nest. And, and so pintails, because of the land use changes, have seen a steady decline. and. Uh, you know, they're going down, but mallards and blueing teal, we have never had in this many birds, and I don't know that we can have more, really. I mean, it's just an astounding number. So part of that is there's more food, there's more habitat, there's more management, and the, you know, we, we have our liberal seasons now. You always hear, far, or uh, not farmers, but the waterfowl hunters talking about the glory days, and I wished it was like this like it was back, remember back in the 80s when we used to kill these yeah. these birds? Well, they remember those good hunts, but what they're forgetting is that point system. And if you shot one hen mallard, you're done for the day, basically, mm-hmm. because you you know your bag limit is two to three birds, depending on the species. Mm-hmm. Now we've got a six-day bird bag. We're killing four mallards. Two of those can be hens. Yep. I mean, we have the most liberal seasons, the longest seasons, and you know these are the glory days right now. So they used to get their limits every time they went because they were shooting a quarter right. of the number of mm-hmm. yeah. right. birds. And they had Canada geese back then. We don't have Canada geese, migrating Canada geese here. They just don't come to Kentucky anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of what they're remembering. But mm-hmm. the ducks, they're remembering good hunts and exactly the limits were lower so they limited out more often. If, if, they, if they limited out, it's easy to forget that bad hunt mm-hmm. except the year you're in it. So yeah. this year I'm having a terrible season. <laughs> but I won't remember this terrible season in four or five years when yeah. it turns around, we have a few good hunts yeah. until the next terrible season. And I was like, man, it, it used to be so much better. Mm-hmm. You, you forget those, I think. That's my personal opinion. Oh, no, that's how it goes. Um, yeah. I had two, two things that popped into my head while you were talking there. 
Um, one, we're talking about all these different species. You named them off earlier and it was just unbelievable, right? But you don't, it, they're, they're different species because they've evolved differently because they need different things. So I'm assuming that each part of the ecosystem is probably used by different species. Like, you know, you might have some wood ducks, they like small yep. creeks and woody creeks. Yep. And then you got the geese who like this. So it is pretty much every aspect of the environment covered by some species of waterfowl? Yeah, basically, yes. Uh, in our duck seasons, you know, we keep referring to our seasons, the ours are based on the mid-continent mallard population. So that mallard population, the mid-continent mallard population, that drives our season. All of our data, that's what waterfowl hunters in the Mississippi Flyway harvest is, is mallards, the green-headed mallard. That's whatever, that's the target species. Hunters are only happy if they're killing their four mallards. Mm -hmm. uh, gadwall, blue-winged teal, green-winged teal, mm. you can kill six of those a day because their populations have been so high, but they, they breed the same, or, or nest the same places that uh, mid-continent mallards do, but the, the mid-continent mallard, it's easy to catch and it's the indicator species, basically. If the mallard population is steady, these other species are probably steady. Now, we certainly have a management plan for scalp, for instance, the scalp bag limit goes up and down. Mm -hmm. It's based on not only the breeding ground survey, but the pond count. So if a, you hit a, a dry year in the prairies, it's gonna, in turn, lower the number of successful pairs that can, can breed on the habitats available. So their, their bag limits may change, even though the bag limit change doesn't affect harvest. It's, it's weather dependent. It's a, that's an hour long conversation that we're not prepared to have. The reason I was curious about that is because I'm thinking, okay, I wanna go waterfowling, right? Mm -hmm. And I have a, a place, you know, let's just say I have a farm in Jefferson County I can go to. I have permission to go there. Now, it might not be set up perfectly you know, and some waterfowl hunters mindset of, of what you need, but I, I might be able to get something different there. Does that make sense at all? Like, uh, I'm thinking that there's opportunity other than the big, the big picture opportunity. Everybody thinks about waterfowl hunting. I need to be doing this, this way. But there's probably some really overlooked opportunities doing things differently. Like maybe just hunting a creek with a, I mean, shotgun. I'm not a waterfowl hunter, so I'm trying to figure this out. Yeah, so in Kentucky, you, I, I kind of lump people into the, a few different categories. You've got the, the categories is what I need to hear. The Western Kentucky waterfowl hunter, they're in the waterfowl habitat. You know, Ballard County, those counties out there, Henderson Sloughs area, that is where the Ohio River spreads out, has these vast floodplains, bottomland hardwood forests that flood every winter, and you have management on the ground, whether private or public big tracts of land managed for waterfowl. So you have that section. That is very much your flooded corn, flooded timber mm -hmm. duck hunt. As you move east, you don't have that. You're, mm -hmm. you're starting to look at little pocket wetlands, little small tracts of land. You get into Peabody and you've got the, the mine ground that has, mm -hmm. has yeah. done some crazy things. And, and you know there's definitely duck habitat there mm -hmm. uh, created from the mining that happened through there. And you're hitting around Bowling Green, you've got these uh, the sinkhole mm -hmm. systems. Well, in the mm -hmm. winter, a lot of those sinkholes turn into ponds. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those are crop fields. They're pit crop fields, but they, they all of a sudden there's water there that what there's not in the summer. And that's the kind of perfect spot. So every section of the state, as you keep coming farther east, you run into smaller bodies of water or lake hunting mm -hmm. and then creeks as you mentioned is always an, a, a possibility creeks always have some kind of invertebrate species they've always got some kind of little bit of, mm -hmm. of vegetation hanging on that survives in the creek because the water temperature is constant right mm -hmm. so if, if it can survive there 
in, in the early winter, it'll be there probably all winter long because creeks generally don't freeze. And the good thing about creeks is when everything else freezes, the mallards go fly. Oh, no. So as you move east, you have smaller pockets of habitat, unless it's a big watershed lake mm -hmm. or, or reservoir. Uh, and then you always got, then you have the Ohio River, and then also lump in Kentucky and Barkley Lakes because they're basically yeah. slowed down rivers. Yeah. Uh, those habitats, are, it's a different kind of hunter. You've got big boats capable of handling big water, which in turn turns into mm -hmm. big waves. Like JV's boat. Right, exactly. So you have to have the equipment for that. So depending on where you live and what you want to tackle, you can do waterfowl hunting with a dozen decoys and mm -hmm. and your dad's old 12 gauge. Yeah, for farm ponds, I mean, that's... Yeah. Or you can show up with literally thousands of dollars in gear. You know, it just depends on, on your... You know, how deep you are into the into the addiction. Wes, I, I asked that question horribly, but you answered it perfectly. So thank you. Because that was maybe the I, I thought to myself, that was probably the worst question why I've ever does, asked. A question I get a lot is, why does the service restrict hunting in February? What's the biological reason? Sure. So that is an easy question to answer with words. It's not as necessarily an easy for somebody that's not a biologist to understand. So throughout the year, let's just take a mallard duck. There are different chances of survival based on the life cycle, the point of its life cycle it's in. So if it's on the nesting grounds, a hen mallard on the nesting grounds in the summer has to keep in phys physically fit enough to defend her nest, lay her eggs and survive predation. It takes energy. Once those eggs hatch, that same hen mallard has a, now has a different set of predators. Now you have your ducklings behind you, your getting those to a safe place. You have to maintain yourself. You're somewhat watching over your babies. Other mallards are trying to steal your babies. Uh, waterfowl, are, they, they, it's a hierarchical system. Geese here, you can, it's nothing to find one Canada goose that has 20 babies following her. Well, she hmm. stole those babies from another mother. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, it's Why a, do they do it? It's a, it's a the, survival thing? It's not necessarily survival. It's just the hierarchical. I'm, I'm the I'm the, I'm boss, the dominant one. I'm so the boss goose. I had no idea they did that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't either. So anyway, that's because I see that here all the time. I was like, hey, that goose had three. Because I mean, you walk every day, you see yep. it. And yep. That, now that one's got eight. Right. What happened? Yep. And now they're alone. So I didn't. I didn't so know moving that. through, when you hit migration, as I said earlier, a certain percentage of those birds are gonna die. Early migration, it's a different percentage than mid-migration and return migration. Mm -hmm. So one of the things as biologists that we know through literally years and years and years of study, February 1st, that bird, that hen mallard, has almost a 100% chance of surviving to the nesting grounds. Mm -hmm. So if she does not get shot in February, most likely she will mm. successfully make it to the breeding grounds to okay. breed, pair up, breed, and build a nest. If we start hunting in that period, we are 100% taking away birds that will nest. We are taking okay. away new nests, new babies. 100% of those birds will take away from next year's population. Mm. So basically when we hunt before February, we're saying, I don't know what the number is, so I'm just gonna make one up. 50% of these birds are gonna make it to nesting. So when we harvest birds, yep. we're only really harvesting half as many as would end what up. What I said earlier, yeah. we try to shoot what we think are gonna die anyway. Yeah, Thanksgiving day, that duck you shoot has a 50-50 shot of making it through winter anyway. Mm -hmm. The farther into the season it goes, the higher their likelihood of surviving to the breeding grounds is. Mm -hmm. So that, or the, the nesting grounds rather. Mm -hmm. So in January, 
we're still fine with the percentage. We realize that more of those birds are probably likely to survive, but it's still a, a shot in there. You know, it, they still have to survive February, March, which yeah. are tough. That, that's when they're moving. They have to, you know, they're going to pick up. They're going to fly a long distance at a time there's very little food. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about birds that get to the the Canadian prairies where the tundra is, there's little food to begin with. Yeah. And you're talking in April and May, there is no food. So they've just literally flown thousands of miles to land in a desert, and they got to survive for a couple of weeks. It's a horrible decision. So, <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> so that, that's why we stop right there because yeah. after February first. Almost every single one of those birds will be Breeding, a, a, a nesting duck that so, we don't want to lower the nesting population. And then if we if we didn't do that, we'd have less birds, and we'd have to be more restrictive on season dates and bag yeah. limits, and it hurts. And hurt historically, yourself. we've hunted birds in March and, and, and yeah. maybe far as April and May. I mean, the the old old I'm talking 50s and 60s, you know, well before what I would call modern science. Mm -hmm. They they messed with those season dates, and a lot of it was based on well, this is when the birds are here, so this is when we're going to shoot them. Yeah. And you, as a scientist, harvest is what we need to know. We want to know how many birds are dying, and then mm -hmm. we want to know what next year's population is. So if you start noticing that harvest is driving your next year's population, you're in a bad spot. You want to back off where your harvest is not affecting next year's population. Makes sense. So, so the constant competition you see out here amongst geese is part of the hierarchical Absolutely. Establishment. I, we have got to go back to that. The, the first animal that ever attacked <laughs> yeah, no. me, the first animal that ever attacked me was a goose down here. I was four years old, mm -hmm. and that sucker came out of the bush and just got me. Yeah. And uh, I wish I could find that goose now. The first one that got me was a yeah. domesticated goose. It was on a friend's property. Do you think that the up. first animal ever attacked me being a goose, I would have been a waterfowler. But, you know, it just didn't work out that way. But um, so how does a, a goose still another goose, a gosling. How, so, how does that happen? So they have a territory basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so every one of those birds in the summertime thinks a piece of that lake is theirs. Yeah. And so if another bird wanders in with goslings following, they steal them. This is my territory. But, they fight for a minute. The babies are young and dumb. They're not certain. Yeah. And they will follow, you know, they're, the birds are, their instinct is to survive. So the Basically, baby's not worried about which mama they follow. They just want to. They want to follow a dominant bird that gives them a good chance of, of survival. So, so that, you're telling me that these birds, well, you know, a goose will beat up another goose and steal its children. Yeah, that's. A, I mean, these are the meanest animals. They are. They're, awful. they're some of my favorite comedy memes and stuff to get out there. The geese, the, the goose memes. Well, I've seen them like have them just another one by the neck and just be. I've seen oh, them try to drown each other. It's yeah. not just geese. I wish I remembered this exact number and species, but I want to say is it like a, a canvasback or or maybe a common merganser, red-breasted merganser, or something like that. In Minnesota, I think they found one hen bird that had like 50 babies following her right behind just <laughs> and she had stolen she did not hatch 50 eggs she mm -hmm. stole those babies man that's that's mm. brutal Geese but are it, brutal. it was one of the highest numbers like recorded do they like, drown each other occasionally oh, yeah. I, no that i couldn't i saw I, a video I, of a it goose. wouldn't surprise me but I, I saw them i saw one attack another one on del hollow once while i was filming i got it on camera I mean, it, it took off flying after it and it chased it in the water and it was trying to pin it underwater. I mean, it was on top of it trying to push it down. Yeah, they could be breeding too. So. Well, I did yeah. see, I saw a video the other day. Um, kind of like when your cat's fighting. It's like, oh, they ain't fighting. <laughs> well, Kristen showed me a video the other day that she had stumbled across and it, a goose killed a uh, duck. 
And it, it basically took the duck and just kept pushing yeah. it underwater. And I mean, the duck was stone cold dead by the end of it. Yep. So, so I get. I mean, they're just the meanest. I didn't realize that they were kidnappers too. Jeez, I'm gonna start waterfowl hunting. Lee, you wanna go? Yeah, <laughs> I, I love it. We gotta get rid of these things. No, no but you um, know, a lot of people don't realize, and not, it's a little off topic. But you know, when, when you're gonna try to take a goose or a duck, it's, the body is nothing. So everybody's like, oh, those big birds, they, they should be easy to hit. No, right. they're impossible. You're looking for the wheelhouse, and that's about the size of a small songbird. Yep. Yeah. That's what you're trying to hit in the air. Yeah, they, the rest of it. They're know, all feathers. That's yeah, right. yeah. yeah, you're just puff feathers, and they're going to fly on. Huh. So what is, is, you know, people, waterfowlers obviously <clears throat> care about the species, just like somebody who quail hunts cares about quail. Mm -hmm. And I always hear, you know, the quail guys, how do I get more quail? The answer is always habitat. But since these are migratory birds, is there much that people in Kentucky to do, can do to increase numbers? And I got another part of that question. What is the biggest threat to the uh, populations? You keep talking about the breeding grounds and, and the plains. Is that area what is really the focus of the, the management? Yeah, habitat number one. That, that is what you can do and that is the biggest threat. Um, there is some neat research coming out. Um, in the Atlantic flyway, so their mallard limit has just been backed off to two birds. And they did some genetic research, and basically what they've discovered is these park mallard, the farm-raised mallard, basically because of the shooting preserves that are out there, sporting dog events where they, they hatch mallard ducks and release them for these, these uh, uh, dogs to, to work over, have infiltrated, you see them at the parks, that's what we have here, that's what I'm calling the park duck. Park duck genes, has driven the wild mallard out. So the majority of the eastern population of mallard, they think, is now influenced by these genes. So to some extent, breeding, interbreeding with a lesser species, such as the park duck, that is a current threat that we're, we're just starting to learn about. You'll hear more about in the next few years as we learn some more about oh, that. So, but that's not the question you asked. That is a no. That's interesting. That is that's actually more interesting because I never thought about it. It's yep. like. A, you know, let's say basically the farther east you go from the Mississippi River, the higher percentage of the DNA of a mallard links back to a park duck, which does not have the survivability traits that a wild mallard would have. Yeah, so it's basically like let's say we wanted coyotes. Let's say we all cared about our coyotes, right? And then all of a sudden we get coyotes that are breeding with the the, the Dotsons, you yep. know, and uh, we start getting these little inferior coyotes, and they aren't going to survive as well in the wild. It's the same thing that's happening with. It's just easier for people to picture it with dogs, I think. Yep. Because you know you see dogs interbreed, you see what a mutt looks like. That's exactly. You picture yeah. the toy poodle that used to be a wolf. That's that's yeah. exactly what. Mm -hmm. So we're basically getting less. I mean, evolved yep. species right. in, you know, in a way that just can't survive as well. When I'm out here, you know, uh, I see a lot of hybrid-looking mallards that look like. Are those? That's them. Yep. If it that's the park like duck? Your, yeah, that's, that's the, park the duck. Some of them are gigantic birds, some of them are smaller. Have they bred with muscovies or some of those? Yeah, or? there's a ton of species. I couldn't even start to, to tell you the different species of, of, it's just like show chickens. There's different, you know, you got your rock, whatever's yeah. in your Rhode Island. Rhode Island Reds, and yeah. You socked rooster, you know, there's all. Dominicker. Yeah, the same thing with ducks. There's, there's a huge variety of domesticated mallard type waterfowl that have been released enough that they interbreed so but that's not as big of an issue here it, it, it's very much more but i do see a lot of them with here the, one day you know it but, should be should be a green head but it's brownish white and yeah 
Yeah, but they're they're mallard. They look like they're ninety percent mallard, yeah, but they're not. That's exactly the birds I'm talking about. But that that's not what I was trying to go with. Well, no, your that's question. interesting. That's <laughs> that's interesting. But I mean, so basically, what you said the the plains, the breeding ground is that area federally protected? I'm sure. Uh, no, not at no? all. It's pro mostly private land, actually. So the the prairie pot. DU has done a lot of work up DU's there. DU's done a ton of work. Delta has lease. Do they lease that for, from the farmer? Yep. So they're your duck stamp dollars. You have to purchase a federal duck stamp to be a legal waterfowl hunter. One hundred percent of that, other than the small bit of administrative cost, go to purchasing breeding habitat. Basically, I, every bit of that goes to the wildlife refuge system, and the private lands programs where they can uh, restore and, and, and ensure that there's gonna be wetland habitat for those ducks to come to. Your plots, grounds, your w, waterfowl protection areas or WPAs, that's private land habitat programs that they protect land on and offer public access to. Uh, it's very much a northern program in the mm -hmm. uh, South Dakota, North Dakota and into the prairies. Uh, so, but but the vast. But we donate a lot. I mean, I've been to a lot of awards or little things. Yeah, Kentucky Duck, Ducks Unlimited guys like, here's what your money's done. Well, for Kentucky, Kentucky Fish and Wildlife, you. we take a portion of yeah. uh, uh, of our budget and we donate it to Habitat on the Prairies. Every state in the country does this. Every one of us have a, a percentage of our budget that we send specifically, and it comes out of the waterfowl budget. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not the entire, you know, we're not taking money from the deer program. It's yeah. coming out of the waterfowl budget, yeah. but it goes to the breeding grounds to ensure that there's habitat there for the well, ducks. I mean, so, yeah, that's probably some of the best management you can do. Yeah, um, yeah I was curious about that. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't know it was private. Yeah. I thought there would be big chunks of private no, public it, land. Oh, no. It's, I mean, there are some public tracks, but it's very much private land. And that's the pintail problem I was just mentioning. That is why there's a pintail problem is because that the farmers have moved into you know urban sprawl hits down here you have to have crops you know yeah. we're we're driven by food we have to feed people yeah. and so these croplands expand also wetland loss has always been a problem and it continues to be a problem it just moves into uh, less developed land and farmers have made it into the northern prairies and they're converting prairie wetlands into, in, farmland. In, into farmland so, and it's very productive farmland mm -hmm. and it can produce birds but pintails nest early and the crop system you know you, if you don't plant crops till April 15th and that pintail initiates in her nest April 1st her nest will be destroyed by the planter mm -hmm. and so anytime when your first attempt is lost secondary attempts may not be mm -hmm. as successful so Makes or sense. they may not try at all depending on competition and whatnot so i want to get to these questions on instagram real quick um like i said we before got, you move on yeah go we for got it. sidetracked to genetics yes in kentucky we're on the wintering grounds so you there you have breeding habitat but there's also wintering habitat so the ducks that come here have to survive winter in good enough condition i, I always equate it to uh, thinking yourself about to run a marathon and at the finish line you have to fight another man for your woman so mm -hmm. you got to fly up to the breeding grounds and you have to be in good enough shape when you get there to fight off another duck that's gonna to try to steal your lady. Or if you're the lady, you have to fight another woman for that spot to have your babies. So- mm -hmm. Did they run a marathon too? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. They, yeah, <laughs> the women, <laughs> okay. absolutely. They fly, the, the hens fly right beside those ducks. That, that should be a new but, sport. <laughs> is you gotta run the marathon boxing at the end of a marathon. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. That would be awesome. But, so wintering habitat. I doubt the, the boxing match would be a, <laughs> much of a slugfest. <laughs> So to, to, to make habitat in Kentucky better, you're, you're flooded corn for high energy foods in the cold season 
and moist soil vegetation. The more of that you can put on the landscape, the better off you are. And Kentucky Fish and Wildlife, we worked with USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. We have a focused effort right now, specifically in Ballard County. Basically, the, the, the farmers of Ballard County came to USDA and said, hey, we've never received any help. You know, there's a, USDA has a lot of wildlife programs, but they've never focused on working lands waterfowl programs so they do easement programs where they just set land aside to grow up into a wetland but that doesn't work with active farmers mm -hmm. so these farmers are looking for a, you know wildlife management's expensive yeah and so the usda sent some money to a focused project out there it's the environmental quality habitat oh hang on environmental quality incentives program okay. i had to get my acronyms right Equip, 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 EQIP. So in Ballard County, right now you can apply and get cost assistance to put in dikes and water control structures in your cropland mm -hmm. to specifically for the sole purpose of providing winter habitat. So in Kentucky, you can do that if you can provide food, either moist soil or flooded crops. Uh, there, there are some other programs for the rest of the state, but there, there's, there's never been a targeted effort. So the Ballard County is currently the only spot with a targeted effort mm. out there going on right now. But the rest of the state, there, we are private lands program, our farm bill biologists, the, we have biologists in these USDA offices and they manage these uh, cost shares programs. So there, there is a way to, to make the population stronger or better here in Kentucky by improving food on the wintering grounds. Okay, that makes perfect I wanted sense. to make sure we got to, no, we chased the rabbit in the weeds on the no. on the genetics question. Oh, I, that, I wanted the, to make sure and, and I, get that out. The genetics out thing was was really interesting to me. Yep. The most interesting thing is still the kidnappings <laughs> are occurring right out here. Well, I've, I've seen it happen, yeah. didn't know what, you know. Yep. Geese or jerks, that's the title of this oh episode. <laughs> well, the, uh, let me get to a couple of these questions real quick. Go for it. Um, let's see what we got. Jimmy Flynn, well, that's a coyote question. Um, when does coyote season come up? I'm not sure if he's asking when it starts or when are we going to talk about it. Uh, we'll try to get Palmer on sometime soon to talk coyotes, but it's legal year-round, yep. uh, daytime. Unless uh, he's talking about the night hunting. Night hunting, December 1st, uh, with a shotgun or rifle. Rifle only on private land, smaller than 6.5 or .264 equivalent. You can use lights, thermals, night vision at night. That season goes out March 31st. It's not in during a firearm season for deer or elk. Um, and then shotgun season goes out April 31st. It's a, a month longer than the rifle. Yeah. yeah. You don't need LP. Sounds like you got it down. Oh, well. LP, we, we got to talk. I got to let the experts talk, man. Um, so this person, why can't parts of western Kentucky uh, have the conservation order for snow geese start February 1st? So conservation order... First off, it's a terminology issue. It is not a hunting season. The conservation order was implemented by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for the sole purpose of depleting the population of snow geese. Yeah. So that was a lot of words there. It, we don't manage that as a hunting They're damaging season. the vital, right. sensitive that is a breeding grounds. That is a killing time, not a season. It's not a sporting opportunity. The sole purpose of that is they want as many geese harvested as possible. So there's rules associated. One of those rules is you cannot have uh, so during that season you're allowed to unplug your shotgun and use electronic calls well snow geese are not in a vacuum they're not snow geese here and all the other species yeah. everywhere else and sorry for the listeners y'all didn't get to see my hand motions there yeah. but you know they other birds come in with snow geese uh, white-fronted geese mallards you name it the snow geese are, are, are very aggressive and dominant so they're going to be the, the dominant bird but 
they're not the only birds there. So if there is a season open by federal rule, you cannot have your conservation order because season you could be out end. there with the unplugged guns and all that. No, right. yeah. And our goose season now does not end until February fifteenth. Period. Mm -hmm. So you can we anywhere in Kentucky, we cannot start the conservation season until February sixteenth, which would conclude the regular goose season. All right, that makes that makes sense. It's, but yeah, basically, it comes down to the same reason that the nighttime coyote right. season isn't in. When have you, you had successful snow goose hunts? Oh, I, I've never done the the snow goose hunt where you're in the, you know, thousands of decoys and mm -hmm. using electronic calls. No, I've never done that. But I have had successful snow goose hunts in just in a regular spread in Arkansas. They kill a lot of snow geese yeah. in their duck spread. In Kentucky, let me predicate. No, I've, I don't think I've ever killed a snow goose in Kentucky. Now, a friend of mine went to the Missouri Boot Hill and uh, did it well, and they, they gave the money to a, f a food pantry. Yeah, typically Henderson Sloughs uh, and then Boatwright and Ballard area, that's really the only two spots we see large concentrations of snow geese. It's, it's very but much- But they're really, really hard to come to decoy. I mean, you've got to put out an enormous decoy spread. Well, it's thousands of eyes hunting for predators. If yeah. one sees you, the whole yeah. group is, is out there. So yeah. it's a very difficult. Yeah. That was Chad Grubb that asked that question. Ivy Stevens, um, wants to know about the uh, normal amount of migrating ducks compared to uh, prior years or what are we seeing this year as far as number of ducks compared to so again years? population and other than a few species of concern is through the roof so there's a difference in population and where are the birds yeah um, migration is tough because we only do ground counts on WMAs, that's a snapshot in time, and then we do the midwinter flight, which is also a snapshot in time. You know, I fly the Ohio River, and this power plant, I fly that power plant for about 10 minutes on a certain date of the year. That's not trend data, that's not anything to indicate migration change, that's just what is there that day that I flew. So we don't have any data that would say migration is, is off based on what we do here in Kentucky. That being said, where are the birds? Yeah. You know, Ballard is having around 40,000 birds typically by now. You know, 10 years ago, they would have had 60 to 80, maybe even 100,000 birds. Uh, now, part of that, there's a lot more private habitat than there ever has been before. So the, the birds could be there, then we're just not counting them. But the, the, the entire Mississippi Flyway from us, uh, even Southern Missouri, Central Missouri, South is asking the same question: Where, What's what's going on with migration? Mm -hmm. And the the true answer is, is we don't know. Well, the Mississippi Flyway Council, in which we Kentucky Fish and Wildlife supports, we have um, I'm involved with that. My boss is involved with that, and our wildlife division chief is the council member. We currently just have set up a migration committee, and it's basically a coordinated effort. Every waterfowl research project in the Mississippi Flyway coordinates to figure out what we're seeing as far as uh, our band data, where are we finding birds, what are radio transmitter birds, if you put a backpack transmitter on that bird, what is it doing? Instead of just one institution, one university doing the research, it's getting shared with the entire flyway every step of the way. And we're trying to pinpoint what's happening with migration, does it look different? Um, I heard a, a presentation from one of the most accredited waterfowl scientists in the nation. He's worked from coast to coast and you know he's 150 years old mickey i apologize if you hear this he's not here <laughs> but he's a sharp guy mm -hmm. and basically his take on this is you know 30 years ago duck season was six weeks long mm -hmm. now we start september 1st in canada the regular season doesn't end on february 15th for geese 
and then we start this conservation snow goose season, which extends. Then we stick these early seasons in. You know, we're shooting early teal, early wood duck, early Canada goose. So you have hunting pressure from September 1st until April, May, whenever the snow geese finally leave the states. Anytime you're shooting a, a shotgun, you're moving birds. You're impacting those birds. We're not certain what that that span of hunting pressure has done to them. Is it changing things? You have no-till agriculture now. You know, mm -hmm. in the middle. I've always heard that's a, that's a cause of, for them to stay home more. The mid-latitude states historically would have been plowed under after their crop was picked with no food in between. So every bird that left the prairies was looking for something in the south. Mm -hmm. Historically, it was rice in Louisiana and Texas and, and Arkansas, mm -hmm. and they bounced along on the way through. Well, now there's food mm -hmm. up north. In Canada, there's still, har you know, harvested grain fields that are not plowed under that have waste grain mm -hmm. and they're not frozen right now. Call it global warming, call it just a tick, you know, fluctuation in weather, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. Bottom line is it's not warm right now. You know, they've only been ice fishing in North Dakota for about three weeks. So they should have been ice fishing yeah. two months ago. Mm -hmm. You know, those birds are not leaving because it's not warm enough and there's still food or available. Not cold. Or not cold enough and there's still food available. Yeah, so, that, so I think the no-till agriculture makes a lot of sense. I yeah, sure. I've always heard that was a big player in it. Yep. So, so, so leaves don't food, feel bad more food on the landscape. Too. We want to know exactly what's going on with migration. It seems like more and more people ask me, like I know, ask me that question. I just tell them that. That's a, it's a huge topic right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's got congressional movement. that We have representatives asking about it. I mean, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And It has been for... 10, 15 years I've worked here, people yeah. hey, talking about we're it. We're working on you know, things are, are times And I think some of that um, good old days I miss, you know, they miss the migration. Yep. Um, know, back so, in the, someone, you know. Someone here wants to know Sandhill uh, crane hunting tactics. <laughs> That's, you were talking about your most challenging hunt. Yeah. If you're just talking about success, it's not a physically challenging hunt, but it's a very wary bird. Um, you have to have excellent decoys and your hide must be perfect. I think that a lot of uh, scouting is important too. It's 100% being where they want to be yeah. and being invisible where they want to be. If you don't, if your blind is not 100% uh, in, you know, yeah. covered to where they will not see you, they're going to pick you out. They're going to flare off. The vast majority of our successful hunters are ambush hunters. They find a fence row with a low spot or they find a ditch they can crawl and sneak into and find birds. Uh, that is that's your most successful tactic is getting permission on a spot that they are going to be in and uh, shooting them yeah. from an ambush location, not necessarily with decoys in the field, but public catching land opportunities in. are very, very limited. Few. Yeah, there's very few. I'd say there's probably some down there around the. Lake, I know Barren Lake River was a, but some of them are. Is there still refuge? Yes. So Green River Lake and Barren River Lake have a no. It's not a refuge. It's a no crane hunting zone. We'll yeah, make yeah, sure you clarify that you can waterfowl hunt. Uh, now, typically, if there's uh, water in there deep enough for two waterfowl hunt in, there's not cranes. But cranes use those mud flats, and uh, we don't need hunters blowing them out of there because yeah. they're going to spread out and making it hard to concentrate, and that that makes it harder for hunters to to gain access when you just have isolated, you know, twenty here, twenty well, here, they, 20 and they here. pull barren so much. There's yeah. so many mud flats so, exposed. Well, that's the way I understand it. So the I think they pull at twenty-seven feet. Lake, that's where the majority of our birds are harvested from, yeah. and it's very much people just knock on doors, find permission, and go. There there are no crane guides in Kentucky that I'm aware of. Um, Hardin County, there's a little population there, and the birds that come there, same way. It's private land. It's all private land in Hardin County. Uh, just knocking on doors, finding somebody to let you hunt, and then you got to be 
hidden and either ambush them, find a low spot that they're going to fly through, or have really good decoys and a good hide to get into. I feel like I know a little bit about sandhill hunting from the TV show, because that's something right. that since that season opened up, we've been trying to highlight. And uh, we have hunted with Brett Zolov before, who's a retired conservation officer. Yep. And uh, his he's really good. Yeah, um, he is. Yep. His tactic is basically he knows that these birds are roosting at the lake and then they're flying out and they're looking for food. So he's looking at cornfields yep. and he pretty much has decided that if you see birds in a field one day, chances are they're going to be there again the next day, yep. the next day. And that might continue for two or three or four days. And then eventually they will be somewhere else. But so he'll drive around and see the birds and get permission and he's right back there yep. the, the next day because and, that's and he's he knows how to hide too that's oh yeah. that's the, the blind mm -hmm. there was the blind that we hunted out of last time was basically a, a t-post blind mm -hmm. and he took uh you know some grassy material and, and boxed it in real good and uh i mean you could see the birds flaring he was real particular about his decoys you know i think we got too many out he yep. ran out there and took five decoys down real quick and uh, it, it was interesting, but it, it was exactly what you're talking about. Ambush style, decoys are important, um, and basically locating the birds and getting access to where they're going to be. Yep. And uh, it, it's cool. I would like to go hunt Sandhill. Yeah, I've only killed one, and it took me weeks to figure it out. The, that was our, our first couple years. Um, I see them occasionally around here. I mean, we had a flooded cornfield in Shelby County two years ago, and there was probably 50 of them. And for anybody listening, the, the hype is real. That It is the best tasting of the waterfowl type species i mean if i don't know if you've if you've had an elk backstrap that's mm -hmm. what i think they taste like elk backstrap just clean good red meat ribeye in the sky that's not ribeye ribeyes are fatty I, flying <laughs> fillet is more fitting i think yeah, that's what everybody's always called a ribeye in the sky <laughs> yep that's, um, a, that's what they're called aaron redmond uh has two actually three let me are there any upcoming duck habitat improvement projects in central kentucky so usda basically is the only ball game nrcs go to your local office there's a equip wildlife program there's some easement programs and crp uh, programs that put waterfowl habitat that's the only big projects going on fish and wildlife currently our efforts are going into ballard county at the moment uh, we move around we have a little bit of money that uh, state money that sometimes is, is is used but it's very very limited we our budget's not great so um, USDA NRCS go through our private lands program our farm bill biologist I think somewhere on the website you can hit the maps and other maps or something like that and you can find our farm yeah bill so I think it's under other yep. maps those are the guys that that know where the money is to do habitat work you also ask uh, how to utilize and access rivers and streams for waterfowl hunting I'd say it really depends on which river you're talking it, about because it does it, it matters a lot which river and it matters a lot what the temperature is so the colder it is if all the ponds and, and even the big lakes if they're freezing that's that's where the action is or rivers and lakes so if you're talking Ohio River that's another beast you know that thing can kill you the Ohio River you have to have the proper equipment do mm -hmm. not try to hunt that river if you do not know how if you've yeah. never done it find somebody that has done it mm -hmm. that or go out on easy days and you should be learning more than worried about killing birds don't go before daylight get mm -hmm. out there at the when you can see and navigate the river and figure it out that's a dangerous place go but ahead. yeah you're talking small streams, anybody can do that. You take any kayak or canoe, it's still cold. You still have to follow, you know, wear your life jacket at all times mm -hmm. and be very aware. As you said, when you're bear hunting, can I make a fire? Can I survive? Oh, yeah. How you, gonna live? you have that same conversation with yourself anytime you hunt on the water. Yeah. So if you're accessing a stream, keep in mind at any time you could flip and be swamped and, and, and caught where you are, do you have a way out? But the hunting can be phenomenal, mm -hmm. especially in icy weather.
Yeah. Because uh, well, the streams don't freeze up, so that's where they go. A friend of mine yeah. passed shot uh, wood ducks there early season. If yep. you know their flyways, yeah, he had, he's had really Yeah, the early good wood duck season, the creek's where you want to be in central Kentucky. Mm -hmm. uh, Western Kentucky, you've got the big wetlands that, that you know, that's where you want to be. But uh, the creeks are good year all season long if you know how to hunt them. It takes mm -hmm. a lot of scouting and a lot of know-how. Yeah. Mason Cunningham uh, wants to know the best waterfowl to hunt uh, when you're a rookie just getting into it. Mallards by far is the is the the go-to because there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're just getting into it, there's depending on where you are, there's public opportunity available. Go to our website. Uh, the waterfowl page is kind of tough to find. Sometimes you can Google or search the website for the waterfowl guide, or you can go to the hunt tab at the top, click game species, then click waterfowl. That is all you need to know about public hunting uh, yep. in Kentucky. Find a WMA, some, some have special regulations such as you can't enter before 4.30 or 4 a.m. You have to be off the area by 2 p.m. If, if there is a special regulation, it is listed in the waterfowl guide. Otherwise, it's open from 30 minutes before sunrise to sunset, and the bag limits are listed in the hunting guide. Uh, the best thing, advice is just go. Go get you a handful of decoys, mm -hmm. some, some, you know, a dozen or two mallard decoys. Go buy that cheap call. Doesn't matter what it is, just something to l learn to do the quack. That is the only thing you need to learn. Okay. Everything bases off the quack and just go have fun. You'll figure it out. Uh, there's tons of chatter on the internet. Some is nice, some is not so nice. <laughs> But uh, you can learn online, but th there's nothing better than first-hand experience. Just get out and go. Do you like the feeding chuckle? It works, uh, but you got to know how to do it. You got to know when to blow it. So that's you, all calls are. So wah, 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 wah. Public is land, the number one. Most, the, your best call on public land is generally leave your duck call in the truck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially if you're not a, some self-proclaimed pro, and I'm not. Yeah. I generally don't call on public lands because you can mess up more than you can help. But and those birds are smart. Yeah, they are. Hmm. So uh, two questions uh, here related to the same. Less thing. is more when calling. <laughs> Sometimes. Grant and Eric both want to know about uh, hunting small farm ponds. Uh, what are some things I can do to attract more waterfowl to okay. the ponds? So this is that's my background in hunting, which I grew up taking it's waterfowl fun. trips to Arkansas, to Western Kentucky, Western Tennessee. But the, my everyday hunting came on on the small farm ponds. So a couple of things that I've learned to work to start getting birds in. Uh, first, I, don't come at me with ethics, <laughs> but in the summertime, you know, we have that resident goose population we were talking about. Bait your pond, get some corn out there, have a reason for the geese to find the place. You can take some old decoys that you don't care if somebody shows up and steals them. Yeah. Uh, throw a couple of goose decoys out. It gets the birds starting to use the place, but that's way before season. You know, your bait has to be 100% gone 10 days before you can shoot there. So make sure you plan for that. Um, that's how you get them there. Now, scouting is 100% of waterfowl hunting. If, if you're farm pond hunting, you've got to find where they're roosting, where they're going during the day, and get somewhere in between. Uh, that goose calling is much different than duck calling. A goose call is your friend. Grab that thing, it doesn't matter if you're good on it or not, and make a bunch of noise with it, mm -hmm. keep practicing. Uh, you want them to get your, you want to get their attention, get some decoys out there where they can see it, use your flag, anything you can do to draw attention to where you are. Now, whether you finish those birds or not will probably depend on, on how well you're hitting and how good you can call, but that's the best thing you can do for a pond hunter here around central Kentucky. I'm starting to think that goose hunting might be more like predator hunting. It's very similar. <laughs> Just get, get their attention. But yep. I struggle blowing my goose. I've got one of those old fox doubles, you uh -huh. know, 
duck on one end, flip it, it's oh, goose right. on the other. Huh. I have a hard time of manipulating the reed to get it to it's sound. Different. It's that, different kind. Of, so you blow with your cheeks on a goose call or your whole mouth, whereas the, a duck call is all back pressure. So it's it's they're different. Well, I've been blowing them kind of the same. Yeah, so. you can't blow a goose. So call you do dizzy Gillespie basically right. for goose. You I would see your cheeks moving with a goose call. If your cheeks are moving, you're very much your, your, your duck call, you're not doing it right. So. I'm, duck, I'm getting better with, but my goose calling needs some help. The, uh, I will say you talked about baiting the, the pond in the 10 days before you can shoot. I will say if you put bait out on a pond, I mean, I would ex I would not be surprised at all if you get checked for it. Oh, absolutely. Because so, there's people looking for that. Yeah, our law enforcement yeah. division literally gets in yeah. airplanes and helicopters and searches for bait. For so, bait. Don't, so, don't, so make sure you do that right. If you don't put, try to slip past this, them. It's not going to work. This is in the summertime. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're talking about. No, before season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. even during season. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I mean, but to get them moving yeah, yeah, during yeah. the summer. Yeah. You... So resident geese. That's that's the the big visible bird. That's that's where you start. You try to get if your pond that you have access to usually doesn't hold birds. Try to get some geese there. The ducks will find it from there um hmm. some somebody here uh wants to know is there any chance kentucky raises the limit on canada geese i never say no to any question like that mm -hmm. uh historically i would have said no so in the management plan uh that u.s fish and wildlife service manages all migratory species we can but currently our population is about forty thousand birds and steady it's not increasing uh it's not decreasing, mm. so we're very particular. You know, yeah. we have our early goose season, and we we kind of watch the harvest. We don't want to harvest too many of our birds. Mm. I mean, we get a lot of complaints, and I get it. If you're close to Louisville or Lexington, they're a nuisance. Mm. If you're in Northern Kentucky, they're a nuisance. But you go to Western Kentucky, you're not going to hunt early Canada goose season. They're just not there. Mm -hmm. And so we are not at a place where our resident population that it, you know, the air quote residents, we can't uh, put more pressure on them right now and be comfortable. You know, everything we do, we're conservative first until we know we can raise the limit. It's not something we would ask for. Is it possible? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it's not at this time something we're interested in. What is the furthest traveled bird you've ever encountered? I guess <sighs> that's a bird of any kind. Yeah. That, that can be a dove. I don't know. Anything. So banding wise, I personally have harvested a... Uh, a couple of Canadian banded ducks, mallard ducks uh, and geese. I've had um, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and can't remember. I was thinking there's three provinces I've, I've shot birds that were banded from. I'll have to go grab the, the certificates to remember if it was uh, further east or, or not. Uh, could uh, probably Manitoba, but I'm not positive on that. What's Any, the furthest you've heard of a bird travel? So the farthest I've heard, and I, you're gotten me out of college too long now, was uh, I want to say there was a so mallards first off are worldwide now. Mm -hmm. They they have moved and continue to move. So I guess if you're talking about a species of bird that have started in one spot and moved, that's the mallard. But we it's not unusual for uh, an African or Northern European, that swath there to show up over here. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a some kind of bean goose. It was a Russian species, uh, like south, Southern Russia or, or Central Russia. It was killed in Arkansas last year. <clears throat> there, mm. that, the, the bean goose, that, that's probably the 
the longest distance bird that I can think well, of. Well, we don't need to put being geese in the uh, waterfowl guy. No, that was a, <laughs> King Otter was spotted on the Ohio River as far as you know, King Otter. Have you ever seen a magnificent frigate bird? I have seen them. Yep, there was one on uh, the magnificent frigate bird on the uh, Minor Clark Hatchery last yeah, year. Yeah, uh, did, we did a story on it in the magazine. Yeah, so when you start talking about birds, there's some crazy stuff. We had a, 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 a what's it called, a, a brown booby bird was spotted on Kentucky Lake or Lake Barkley one last year. No, it's been two or three years ago now, but that's a species that, that you know, the coastal species that we don't get. I mean, there's some cool stuff that, that show up. Um, that Rufus hummingbird that came to my yard, that bird was banded in Louisiana and wintered in, I want to say Wyoming or maybe even Washington State or mm -hmm. possibly farther north than that. And it, so it's a, a somewhere in the that far northwestern corner this teeny tiny bird showed up in my yard in madison county got banded again yep so there you go. so with long distance stuff uh, we see a lot of crazy movements with with ducks mark as there's so there's several questions that are geared towards the same things mark o'connor uh cameron withers and um aaron redmond all curious about the uh, migration status mm -hmm. have the birds already passed or not yet so yes and no yeah. so we've had a ton of birds that have already come through uh, your early migrants, pintail, uh, blue-winged teal, obviously, they're the first to move every year. Blue-winged teal are the, always the first birds to leave. And then you have the uh, pintails, green wings, gadwall, widgeon, bufflehead start showing up. And as you go later, it turns into uh, golden eye, canvasbacks, and eventually the mallards and the migrating Canada geese in the central part of the state they'll start to show up so some of those earlier ones yes yes the and early then, the early migrants are gone for the most part mallards and the migrating canadian geese are well, what's neat about the warm spells that we have between cold snaps they bump back north so a few weeks ago the pintails that had already left duck island mm -hmm. on lake barkley came back mm -hmm. and there were this big group of pintails that all of a sudden was sitting on duck island that shouldn't have been there they weren't northern birds most likely those mm -hmm. probably southern birds that bumped back up so so the answer is yes and no. They, they've, they've come, gone, and not here yet. So. Hmm. Uh, why on earth are Canadian geese federally protected when there's so dang many of them? Yeah, I think we covered that. The, yeah. the molt migrations they do, they do migrate a small percentage, but they do migrate. And so that, that the yeah. main reason is they're listed on the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And I yeah. think we hit this one too. Uh, David Madison, how actively is the department pursuing new public waterfowl projects and properties? A hundred percent of the time I'm thinking of that. So if you have a good idea, call me here at headquarters. Uh, like I said, currently I have a project going. Uh, I'm looking for private landowners all the time that want to do work and especially partnering work. If you've got an idea, a way that you can bring something to the table and not just us bring you some money, because let's face it, we don't have any money. You mm -hmm. know, hunting license has been declining for years. That is our budget. And so we're not just teaming with money, at the, especially in the waterfowl branch. You know, it's a small segment of the hunting population anyway. So that being said, um, we're doing a little bit of work in Ballard County right now. Ducks Unlimited always does some work. Uh, you know, they do have the license plate dollars that we're always looking for projects here and there. There's easements opportunities and then the, the private lands work that our, our farm bill liaisons do uh, through the USDA and RCS. That's the, the, the biggest chunk of, of what we're doing right now. Best month to duck hunt during Kentucky duck season? So that's a, that's a loaded question. So if you ask any waterfowl hunter, it's the last few days of season mm -hmm. every year. But if you look at harvest, we harvest more ducks in December than January. 
So the young birds, the dumb birds that mm. have not seen every decoy spread, heard every hail call, those birds are the birds are more susceptible to harvest in December. So if you ask me, opening day at Ballard WMA is is a hard to draw hunt for a reason. That's because those birds have not been hunted. Yep. And there's lots of them there. In January, those birds have seen every spread, they've heard every call, they know where the safety spots are. Uh, there was a study out of Minnesota a few years back, and it was it, this, they weren't targeting uh, safety areas, but they were putting backpack transmitters, GPS transmitters, uh, GPS, GSM satellite transmitters on a, on a bird and seeing where they go. They're yeah. tracking migration, one of those projects. And one of the byproducts they learned was that a, those hen mallards were susceptible for, to harvest for about 24 hours in a new location. So yeah. when they left, when they got to a new state, they, for that 24 hour period, they may or may not die. After that 24 hour period, they found all the refuge areas and their, the, the mortality went to zero from, yeah. from harvest. Wow. So, so in my opinion, Early season is better than get, late season. Get the dumb birds. But late season we have more birds, and so it's a more memorable hunt. Generally, it's colder. It feels more like winter time. You know, it's the more memorable hunts seem to be January, but late January. But I, I, the harvest is there in December. I shouldn't call them hmm. dumb birds because they're actually just regular birds. They haven't, haven't been educated yet. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yeah. So um, let's see. One or two more naive questions. birds. That's right. We've gone a little bit long here, so I'm looking to wrap this up. Let me just see if we can get one more. Has the weather affect? How has the weather affected uh, this waterfowl season? It's tremendously affected it. So a couple of terms you've probably heard me say a few times is new birds and stale birds. Uh, stale, what I mean by that is that's those birds that have been in an area longer than 24 hours. They know where the safe spots are. They figured out where can they sleep, where can they eat the next day without getting shot at, and they're not gonna vary from that. Those birds, no matter what you do, unless you can get permission to be in that spot <laughs> where they're eating or sleeping, you're not gonna kill that bird. And so weather influences that heavily. You gotta have some change in weather, something freeze, and you know, if the, if the roost pond freezes over, if the food source freezes over, that bird has to do something different and you need to be out on the water waiting on them when that happens. Well, Wes, I wanna wrap it up like this, unless Lee has anything. Uh, an underutilized WMA for waterfowl hunting. Where is there one that you can think of where people just aren't taking advantage of it? I, uh, anymore, I don't think that exists. Okay, uh, so yeah. waterfowl gets hit pretty hard on the good WMAs. It really does. It's it so hard to find a place to hunt. I mean, and to hunt that big water, I mean, you're looking at a major outlay of cash. I had a friend invite me to hunt Slew's WMA early this year, it was the first week of the second segment, that first week of December. And he said, oh, I know this place. He said, as long as we're the first boat to the river or uh, the creek or wherever it was, I don't even know what the, th the body of water that we're gonna put his boat into. He said, we're the first one to that ramp. We'll get the spot to ourself. Uh, I said, hey, oh, all right. You know, Slew's WA can't be on the WMA till I think it's 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. And so we got there 4 a.m., not another truck in sight. Felt great about it. We, so we took, took the boat forever, parked the boat, got out, went hiking through the dangest hike you've ever been through, uh, you know, grunting, fighting bushes and with decoy bags on our back, thinking the whole time, I mean, we're moving fast, but thinking we've got it to ourselves. We get to the spot and there's already a light there. Hmm. Like crap, we go to the secondary spot in case somebody beats us. There's nobody there yet, but we can see five headlamps coming down on us. And this is a Tuesday, you know. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so that question, I don't know if there's a public spot that's not found out about anymore. But that shouldn't stop you. Just well, it, 
let me say this. Somebody messaged me, I want to say yesterday, just or two days ago, just randomly asked me this question. They wanted to know if they could waterfowl hunt Elkhorn Creek at Sullivan WMA. Yeah. Um, I told them to check the WMA out on the website, and I told them, you know, James Brace and, and uh, Officer Robinson, the COs, if they wanted to make sure they were completely good. But so a WMA like that, Sullivan, it's a very small WMA that borders Elkhorn Creek. The creek's public. Sullivan's public land, as long as you're well, not... The creek water is public. Well, and El Elkhorn is one where the bottom is, too. Is it? Okay, so no, I would say every... Only Elkhorn. Uh, yeah, well, I got you. Judge Wingate. All right, so S that's, that's said wading is an essential activity on Elkhorn Creek. So. Most creeks in Kentucky is owned by the private landowner adjacent, or the, the but state public landowner. owns the water. So if it, if if Elkhorn Creek is a public resource, then absolutely you can hunt there. Um, Silver Creek, close to my house, for instance, famous smallmouth fishery. Lee knows a lot about. Oh, I know about. A lot of people duck hunt Silver <laughs> Creek. Now that's a yeah. great place to waterfowl hunt. Yeah, but the private landowners, are on the some are, do not allow access. And the bottom of that creek is owned by the landowner, so you can't stop your boat. If you paddle into that portion, you can hunt it while you're floating on the water, but if your boat anchor, a decoy anchor, anything touches bottom, now you're trespassing. Yeah. So that, that gets tough. That's a, one, that's a good thing about Elkhorn. I think Franklin County, but because it, it's a county judge executive who made Franklin County the, pub, the bottom of the creek public. And it was because of you know, all the kayakers and the yep, paddlers. Sure. And so, I mean, it's a, it's personally, a I think it's a great rule, but at the same yeah. time, I understand if you, it, if you own the property there though, you yeah. know, oh, well, you see, my, no, I do have firsthand. We do own my farm backs up to Paintlet Creek and we, I could care less if somebody, yeah. if, if somebody was hunting there the day I went to hunt there, I would not throw a fit at all because I do like the Creek to be utilized by everybody. But don't come up, don't come up into me. Yeah. You know that's yeah. a, that's a tough. It's a, I understand it from yeah. a landowner's perspective as well. I didn't realize that your farm bordered Paint Lake. I, yeah. I I spent some time fishing Paint Lake too. I, I never did as like good it. on Paint Lake though as on Silver Creek. I think Paint Lake was better for yeah, me. Yeah, numbers yeah. is better. You'll get bigger fish on Silver Creek, I think. But the numbers, Paint Lake. Group, I see. I thought it water. was. I thought. I thought I caught better numbers and quality. Really on Paint Lake. Maybe, but it, it, I mean, I'm not as good a fisherman well, as you it are. It probably <laughs> depends. On, maybe it's maybe it's the other way around. I couldn't catch the pressured fish at Silver Creek. I had to go find that. But it might depend on. Which part of Paint Lake too? I'm not sure if you're near the to Paint Lake, the town, or if you're. I was I'm between Paint Lake and the river. See, I was that's the town where I was fishing. Lake. Were you fishing around Paint Lake, the town? No, I was. Uh, I'm trying to. The way I would get there. Is it Bradshaw Mill? That's one of them that's out there. Now I used to fish down there, but then there's a lot of Paint Lake that just doesn't have much. Yeah, there's not a lot of access. On and, and and much gradient either. You right. know, in the summer it yeah, gets pretty. This More place. spotted bass habitat. I can't tell you what it's called, but I can tell you how to get there. You drive down um, to Silver Creek, you know, the bridge, mm -hmm. Mine Ridge property. Yep. And you go up the hill, past the winery. You're coming to my house that way, man. And you get to the stop sign, and I think you take a left at a stop yep. sign. And, and head toward Kirksville. Yeah, and then you take a ride on a smaller road, and yep. there's a little so round hill store, right? The little gas station store. Is that still open? Uh, just closed. Yep. There's there's a little pull off on the side of the road where people dump a bunch of trash and stuff. It's like a drain. It's a small drainage that runs right in the paint lake. Paint looks like 20 yards up, and there's a pull off where you can park there. Yeah, yeah there's a couple of little small yeah little branch roads. roads that go down. Wheeler's Wheeler's branch. Wheeler's goes down. Uh, yeah, Wheeler does go to Paint Lake. That's out farther out Poozie Ridge Road. Yeah. But I'm not sure anybody uh, no, listening. And Round Hill Road. Come out there sometime. I like that's that area. I miss Richmond, man. That's I, my hometown. That's my hometown. I do miss Richmond. Well, yeah, I had a newspaper out on Poozie Ridge. I mean, it's just beautiful. Yeah, uh, I went all the way to the river and back on Poozie Ridge Road. Gotcha. Poozie Ridge? That's where I used to launch. Uh, when I fished the river down there, I'd launch at Poozie. And I'd, I mean, 90. That last uh, Richmond Register tube, that was on my route. 99% <laughs> of the time, I was the only person there. Uh -huh. Sometimes there'd be somebody down there bank fishing right yeah. off the ramp. But 
I'm telling you, that ramp, I never saw people launching boats. Yeah. It, it's a little more popular, but it's mostly local guys. We, well, we, we fix it up. It used to be yeah. the mud it, ramp. You it know, it you still do. gets pretty muddy. Uh, that little turn in the river right there, it deposits a lot of silt on the ramp. And until somebody calls, you know, the county doesn't check that regularly. But yeah. Well, all right, guys. Well, Lee, you got anything real quick? We've gone really, this is the longest podcast we've done by by far. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, hopefully they turn the whole windbag over here. <laughs> I'll tell you, the, I, I still think the, the most impressive thing I learned today was that the uh, geese are just, I mean, just yeah. a, not just that, but they're, they're just, jerks. Kind of geese are jerks, man. But uh, <laughs> one of the things that you can do, though, if you know anybody has a farm pond and with, with the number of geese, sometimes they're a nuisance they'll give you access yeah. and then you don't to hunt a farm pond you don't have to just a few decoys uh make a, a blind with zip ties and you know a woven wire fence and grass and yep i mean you you could be spend under fifty dollars and have a great time on farm you pond. know something we need to hit soon on a podcast lee the, a little bit earlier in the podcast is how to get access mm -hmm. um, how to approach a landowner how to you know what what to do it's a little bit because i've actually thought about trying to get some new farms to hunt here recently and i normally i would i don't i don't like the phone call i like a handshake yeah, and, and knock on the door yes, sir. but i'm kind of concerned right now about do i want to knock on somebody's door with covid going on mm -hmm. or they don't want to shake my hand and talk to me face to face so i have on x and i've been looking at properties and i have some names and i want to go knock but before COVID, i could probably address how before covid how i would get access to properties and just how you approach a landowner what you say things like that. And uh, that, that might be something that people would have some interest in. So maybe we'll try to hit that on the next podcast. Yep. Get somebody else who, like Wes and like yourself, somebody else who has, uh, you know, done that door knocking and been told, I and mean, you might get told no 20 times, but if you get told yes on the 21st time, it's yep. going to be worse. Just like asking girls to dance at North Dakota Duck Hunt, man. That was the, which I don't do it anymore because of the kids, but we used to go and there's tons and tons of public land and even the private land, if it's not posted, is public. But the best hunts always had a posted sign. You find there when you scout, it's where am I gonna kill a limit, not where am I gonna kill a duck. And so you find it, and it's, it has to be posted with the name, phone number, and address. And mm -hmm. we do find that address, go to town, knock on the door mm -hmm. every single time. Y'all drove from Kentucky to hunt ducks. Yeah. You know why would you want to shoot a duck? And, yeah. and it always finished the same way. As long as you don't hunt my pheasants, you're more than welcome. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And, and with an app like OnX or HuntStand, I mean, I could... Did you ever sweeten a deal with a gift? I've always offered duck meat, but those guys are in pheasant country. Yeah. They're not going to eat a duck. <laughs> so, but not in, uh, in Kentucky, I certainly have. I bought country hams, and yeah, I've done a lot of gifting to landowners. That, that Most of it's helping with cattle. <laughs> I just find those farmers and show up on the day they work their cattle. Mm -hmm. that, that goes a long way, too. But yeah, yeah, and a lot of times, if you just offer something like that, they'll tell you not to worry about it, but they appreciate right. it. Yeah. I think just being courteous and nice, and, you know, I think there's something, like I said, I think the handshake and looking somebody in the eye is the most important part. Because well, yeah. I'll be honest with you, if I was a landowner, I'd be much more likely. They say that when you know first impressions are everything and that, that first initial um introduction between two people it determines 90 percent of the perception of, of how that's going to go and so i think that if you can get off to the right start at the very beginning you've got 90 percent of it yep yeah those you gifts know. i was talking about that's for long time yeah. access people yeah. that have let me well, hunt for a lot of years when we go to I those start, arcs and smallmouth fish and we see a great place and Fish that. We if I had to bring a country hound for every knot door I knocked on, though, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd go broke. <laughs> Ma'am, I see the creeks here. We're from Kentucky. We're, we're, we're going to be gone in a couple of days, but 
If we were to give you $20 a piece, would you mind if we waited back here a couple of hours and caught some small mouse? Oh, no, go right ahead. Cut this you know. out, Jason. Yeah. You're going to have to delete this now. <laughs> it works. Free access will go away. Yeah. They have a thing called a rod fee where a guy will have a little honor box set up and, you know, I charge oh, yeah, $15 cool. a rod yeah. or something like that. That's, that's cool. You know, I mean, hell, you, you, you go to Panera Bread and eat lunch. You've, it's like for uh, you and the, your, Maria, the your honey, you've thrown out $25. Program. So Down in Berea, they have the little buckets full of walking sticks. You take one, leave one or whatever, yeah. the little hiking stick. or Oh, down at the Pinnacles? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen those. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, and no matter where, if somebody's listening to this in their car, they've made it. <laughs> so so, yeah. so yeah, uh, we'll call it quits. I, I, I appreciate you coming on, Wes. Absolutely loved it. A lot of good uh, info. Lot yeah, of good. it was. Real good. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs>